Well, thank you all for having me here. Uh, Dave was like, would you like to preach the week after, or the week, you know, of Thanksgiving? I said, sure. And I was like, well, do you want to, do I, do I pick something? Do I speak from the heart? What do you want to do? He goes, well, we're going through the book of Acts. If you'd like to preach on some of that, I said, awesome. And then he says, you get four chapters to preach on in the book of Acts. And so this is going to be fun. In the words of Snoop Dogg, greetings, loved ones. Let's take a journey. There you go. Anyway, so obviously it was the holidays. There's some of you coming in from out of town or visiting family. Maybe some of you. Cool. Okay, so yeah, I'm not the usual preacher here, so if you, if you like what happened, if you come back next week, it'll be Dave. If you don't like what happens here today, come back next week, it'll be Dave. So, good stuff. Uh, a lot of people gathered around the table, eating, watching football, hanging out. Weather's not always so nice, so what do we do? We like to watch holiday movies, that's what we've already been doing. Home Alone, Grinch, Elf already are going on in our house. Maybe some of you are all watching Netflix. Yeah, binge watching over the weekend. How many of you guys have seen, I'm sure, if you've not seen it, you maybe have heard of it, like the biggest documentary on Netflix, Making a Murderer. Making a Murderer, right? Ooh, yeah, I know, some of you fans out there, right? Story of Stephen Avery in jail now. I'm going to ask this question, if you feel comfortable answering. How many of you think, whether you've seen season one or two, how many of you think guilty? Okay, nobody wants to raise their hand, or everybody thinks he's not guilty? Wow, all right then. Whether you think he's guilty or not, we can all agree that Ken Kratz is uh, not a nice dude. He's, he's weird. That's what I'll say about him. I won't say any more. So, okay, let's get into our story. Well, what does making a murder have to do with today? Well, today we're looking at the story of Paul. The book of Acts takes place after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He commissions his disciples, his, his leaders in the church, and the church starts to explode. And there's a lot of people that come out of these stories, Peter is one of those, John as well, but there's a man named Paul who enters into the story, and we're going to read a little bit more about his story, so I won't spoil it yet if you're just joining us this week. But the last part of the book of Acts is all about Paul and his road to Rome and what's happening here. And so Ben preached a great sermon last week. Thank you for doing that. Uh, and even that one, if you want to hear more just about Paul's story and how it fits inside of God's story, I would definitely check that out. I'm assuming it's up online. And so um, where we left off, though, was Paul had been arrested. He had come to Jerusalem, to the temple. He'd been seized by an angry mob and arrested and brought before the leader, the, the leader of the Roman centurion. They call him a tribune. And what we're picking up here is in chapter 23. And we're going to see kind of what takes place. There's a series of trials and things that we're going to look at in these four chapters. And what happens in the first part of this section is we're going to see that they're taking Paul and making him a blasphemer. So that's my way of connecting to making a murderer. There you go. You're welcome. So, again, I'm doing four chapters today, so we're not, we're not going to have time to read every bit of it. And so I would just encourage you, if you uh, want to read your Bible this week and you're looking for something to read, maybe you can read through these, these sections. But this is Paul's, Paul's first trial. So there's the defendant, Paul. There's the accusers, which are the Jewish leaders, and they've gathered together to destroy this man, Paul. And they're in front of this Roman tribune. And this first trial, it's a joke. It's, 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 fun. it's actually funny what happens. So Paul gets up, and they're saying, you know, he's guilty of all these things. He's done all these things. And Paul gets up, and he says this in verse 6 of chapter 23. He said, he sees one part are Sadducees and one part are Pharisees. These are different Jewish leaders in the community. And they have some points of theology that they don't quite agree on. So Paul gets up. In verse 6, he says, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. 
It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, at first glance, it doesn't sound like much. But the thing is, is the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed heavily on whether or not there would be a resurrection of the dead. So as Paul's saying, it's respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial, he ignites a fight. He actually divides the Jewish leaders, and they start fighting each other. And it's just not a fight with words. They actually start to get so angry at each other and what Paul had done that they start to, t- they, the Roman governor steps in and he says, he says, I got to take him away because they are literally going to tear this man apart. So he takes him away. The trial stops. So that was the first trial. And the accusers, they get desperate. So they create this plot to assassinate Paul. I really think this is funny. In, um, in verse 12, it says, The Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. So that's how committed they are. They said, we're not going to eat anything. We're not going to drink anything. We're not going to stop until he's dead. And then we'll probably party. Spoiler alert, he doesn't die. So I've always wondered, like, did they just uh, not eat or drink anything? Or were they just like, okay, we can kind of get out of this. We'll, we'll wait till later. Anyway, I just think that's funny. So, so what happens is this tribune is trying to figure out what's going on, and he gets wind of this plot to kill Paul. And so he says, i got to take care of this. And so he sends Paul away. He provides him Roman military protection, and he actually sends him to the governor. And the governor at this point in the story, in chapter 23, his name is Felix. And so what we're going to do is actually we will read through chapter 24 because I think it gives some light as to the full picture of what's going on. Because like I said, there's going to be several trials that we'll see in these four chapters, and so this one I think highlights a lot of what's going on. So Paul's in front of Felix, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And the Jewish leaders come down because they took him away from Jerusalem into a, another town called Caesarea. So the beginning of chapter 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one called Tertullius. My autocorrect wanted to call him Tortilla, so that might be a good name too, but that's, that's what it is, Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. That is a lie. If you read the, like, what's going on in this section, Tortullus, I think he's probably a Gentile, kind of like a prosecuting eterner, think slick suit, that kind of guy. He's coming in and he's playing the politics game with Felix. He's like, oh, you're doing such a good job. We love all the things you're doing. Not true at all. But he's just trying to butter him up. And so he says in verse 4, But to detain you no further, I beg you, in your kindness, to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, that's Paul, a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews, those Jewish leaders, also joined in the charge, affirming all these things that were so. So he's laying out these charges. And none of them are true. The only one that's sort of true is Paul is becoming a leader in the church. And he's referring to it as a sect of the Nazarenes. But he's not stirring up the crowds. If, you read the, if you've been reading, if you've been following the Sidera's church through the book of Acts, every time Paul goes to a town, he proclaims Jesus. 
It's other people who come and raise up riots and try to kill Paul time and time again. And then he goes to a new town, and those people follow him there. And that's actually what happened. These Jews from Asia, as Luke calls him, um, are the ones following Paul in his ministry and trying to, they're not going to stop until they get him destroyed. And so then it says in verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, that's Paul, he replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul's not actually buttering up. He's just saying, you've been around. You are aware. You've been governing here. You know what's going on. And so I am glad to bring this to you because you, you know what's going on. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way... Now, Luke calls Christianity, you know, they called it the way at the beginning. That was what it was, it was referred to as the way. It wasn't until later that the church was starting to be called Christians. It was actually like a derogatory term because it meant little Christ. But Christians took it and said, well, we'll take that. Yeah, we're, the Christ is in us. So it was called the way. So anytime you see that, that's what it's referring to. But I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will, be, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to prevent, present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make accusations, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing. So Paul is saying, this is a joke. This is a joke what's happening to me. These are false charges. You can throw up that slide too. I have one that's kind of listing out this, this making a blasphemer. And it's a summary of what's going on in 23, 24, and 25. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, there's false charges being laid, right? They're saying that he blasphemed the temple. What they're accusing him of is bringing Gentiles into the kind of restricted se section of the temple, which he didn't do and to stirring up crowds. They have no evidence. They're doing this political maneuvering. And he says even the people who are accusing him, these Jews from Asia, he's like, they're not even here to accuse me. And there's the, again, they're, they're actually trying to kill him, this plot, this assassination plot. And so he says, there's only one thing that I've done, and this is why I'm standing before you. Verse 21, he says, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. So Felix hears all this. He hears their accusations. He hears Paul's defense. And it says, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off, saying, when Lysisius the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix is kind of like, he puts a pause on the trial. He says, until the tribune comes. And the tribune was the one who had sent Paul. Now, this doesn't ever happen. We don't know why the tribune never comes, but there's some details as to what's going on with Felix here. In verse 24, it says, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Paul is telling Felix about Jesus, about faith in Jesus. That's awesome. 
But Felix's true intentions get revealed here in chapter, or in verse 26. It says, And the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So Felix's intentions are being revealed here. He's hoping for a bribe. He's hoping that maybe Paul will contact his friends or whoever, maybe the church, and gather some collection and hand it off to Felix, maybe to buy his way out. But Paul's not going to do that. It says when two years had elapsed, so two years go by of Paul being in kind of this house arrest in front of Felix, talking to him about Jesus, and all the while Felix is just sitting there waiting and waiting for some opportunity. Paul's going to get worn down. He'll give me some money, whatever I need to do here. I just think that's fascinating. I think sometimes we read these stories, we think, you know, they happen just one after another after another. It's two years Paul spends in house arrest here with Felix. What happens is it says Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. That's a great name, Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Felix has no reason to believe that Paul is actually guilty of anything. He's manipulating the system. And he decides, well, I never got my money from Paul, but what I can at least do on my way out is gain some political favor with the Jews and leave Paul in prison for Festus to deal with. Sometimes you hear, you know, you hear about politicians, you know, they're on their way out and they do, they do certain things to try to protect their careers and they're going to move on to some other thing. It happens. And that's what I want to talk about just for a second here. But before I do that, so what happens is Festus, he arrives now, he's the new governor. So there's a lot of characters, a lot of things happening in this story. And Festus comes, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And again, there's kind of another trial, but what I'd want to just read real quick is this summary in, in chapter 25, verse 7. It says, When Festus had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Paul argued his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So Luke is making it abundantly clear over and over at each of these trials in his narrative accounts that Paul is innocent of any political, religious crimes. But the Jews still want to destroy him. And even after that, it talks about how Festus also is trying to do the Jews a favor. And so he's trying to bring Paul back to Jerusalem to have the trial there because it seems to be a Jewish matter, right? He doesn't seem to be breaking any Roman laws. And Festus is like, well, I can bring him down there. But Paul is aware of the plot on his life. He knows if he goes down to Jerusalem, the Jews will assassinate him on the way or whatever opportunity they get. And he's not going to play by their rules. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. If you think I've done something wrong, then I want to go to Caesar. So he's taking this kind of this trial thing in this court and it's going up the chain. Kind of like, you know, going to the district court of appeals, Supreme Court. I only know all that because I watch Making a Murderer. Apparently, I really want you to watch that show. But all the while, Paul is facing opposition. And I think the opposition is coming in two forms. The first is that there's an actual opposition here to justice. There's an opposition to justice. The Jews realize what they're doing, even if they believe they're right, if they believe that Paul is truly a blasphemer, they are fully aware that they are manipulating, bringing in false witnesses, and doing things contrary to their own laws to try to destroy Paul. I think if we were going to put it into our modern terms, we would kind of say the ends justify the means. That they're saying, Paul, he's a really bad dude. He's leading this sect. We don't like it, and we will do whatever it takes, including assassination to put this man down and to stop this spread of the way. I was thinking about what that might look like in our day. 
And I was thinking about kind of that mob mentality that we have. Have you noticed that? If you're getting online on Facebook or Twitter, reading articles, things like that, it seems like in this day and age there is a mob mentality that is so quick to spread like wildfire. And sometimes people are guilty of something. And they should, you know, we should stand for justice. But I think sometimes what's happening is even at the first hint of any wrongdoing, people jump on and they're quick to light someone up, regardless of whether or not they've done anything. That's not true justice. I would invite us to consider that when you're, when you're on your social medias or when you're having your conversations, especially if you claim to be a follower of the way, to be careful about just immediately jumping in kind of the, with the mob and attacking people. It's a complicated situation. I, I can't tell you what to do. I would just say, maybe pause and think about this. Is, is, is all the evidence before me before I render a verdict here online? And it's tricky, I admit, right? Because you'll read one article and it'll say one thing about someone and another article and something. That's where I'm like, maybe it's best just not to say anything. Now, we can still stand for justice. That's what the Jews were doing. The Roman people in this story seem to also understand what justice is. I mean, they're in these leadership positions, supposed to be administering the laws. But it seems to me that what they're doing is saying, I will administer justice as long as it suits my needs. I will stand and deliver verdicts and do justice as long as I can get something out of it. As long as it doesn't stand in the way of, of my position. And this is true throughout time, that people will always use avenues of justice that God designed for opportunities for injustice whether that be the legal system, the political system, financial institutions, organizations. People will always use avenues that God created for justice as a means of injustice. Why does this matter? I wanted to bring up this point real quick because justice does matter. And it should matter to those of us who claim to be followers of the way. See, I think by God's grace... God's common grace, there are people in leadership positions or people who can pursue justice that God wants and not be a part of the way. Do you follow me? There are people by God's common grace who can administer God's justice without even acknowledging that God exists. But I do not think the reverse is true. I do not think if we are Christians, if we are followers of the way, that we could then not stand for justice. I do not think God allows for that. And it's a gospel issue. It's an image of God issue when we're talking about justice. Quick example. If I lost my house and everything that I owned in an earthquake or a flood or something of that nature, would you all stand with me and cry for justice? No, I mean, we'd be like, well, how can we help you? Let's, let's help, you know, a brother who's lost their house or something. Now, if someone had come and targeted my house and stole all my possessions and then set my house on fire. Could we then cry for justice? Sure. Because what's happened is one image bearer of God has violated another image bearer of God, and that has created an injustice. That's why the pursuit of justice matters, because we are dealing with image bearers of God, and everyone has been made in God's image. I already talked before the sermon about our just pursuit of this community dinners. And, and again, that's, I'm not saying that's exactly a justice issue. Not everybody's been, you know, committed an injustice there. But my point is, is remembering that everyone's made in God's image and to pursue that. And so I would invite you as you see these avenues of justice, and it can seem like a heavy, complex issue. There are things in our society that we're saying, we need justice on, and we do. 
And then you can kind of go, well, what can I do? What can even our church do? Well, I think you can start with remembering that everyone's made in God's image. And then prayerfully consider, what does justice mean for that person? And as God allows you more opportunities to create maybe more movements of justice, by all means, pursue them. But really, this opposition to justice is, I think, a consequence of the main issue here that Paul is facing. And that is opposition to Jesus Paul has said it twice now. He says, this is the reason I'm on trial today. With respect to the resurrection of the dead. And he's referring to the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because Paul is a follower of the way he is facing this opposition. And the religious leaders understand this. That everything Paul says, that he says, your scriptures, your way of life, your laws, your temple, your system of life is all about Jesus. And only about Jesus. And that stands in contrast to what they believe. This opposition to Jesus is what's taking place here. And Paul says, and we've already read it, in verse 16 he says, I take pains before God and others to have a clear conscience. And I think we should do that as best we can. If you are a follower of the way, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, opposition will come. It will absolutely come. May not come in this big organized way, but opposition to your life and the things that you truly stand for, it will come. But we try to take steps to have a clear conscience before, before men. Think about this. Paul, if you read the story, when he first started out, he was persecuting Christians. And he was being sent by the religious leaders. So these are men that he worked for to bring about the persecution of the church, and now has since then become a follower of the way. And now these men want to put him to death. It's crazy. Opposition may come, and it may come through people we know, and it may come, like Paul, with people that are closest to God. You throw that next slide up. Opposition, it may also come from within the church. 2 Timothy 3.6 says this, From among them, that's among some of the, in the church, there are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. 2 Peter talks about it. And many will follow there, that's the, that's the false teachers that are coming in through the church, will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. There is a myriad of scriptures I could have pulled where church leaders are talking to their church and saying, watch out because some of the opposition will come from among you. And I think that's important for us to remember. When I said before, people will use the avenues that God has created for justice as a means of injustice, that absolutely goes for the church. There are people within the church that will use their positions to gain power and unrighteous authority. They will gather up unrighteous wealth through greed, and they will take advantage of others using them for sex, other type of things. These things happen. It's Thanksgiving. I know your families are here, so I don't want to get into it too much. I started trying to Google uh, things in, you know, if you Google, I'm already saying it, uh, Pennsylvania, Catholics, abuse, that stuff. You can read that. Um, I'm not going to talk about it right now because that will just bum me out. Uh, but opposition does come. It comes. 
But with this, and this is really where I want to bring us into, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in chapter 26, is that all this opposition, Paul uses opposition both to justice and to Jesus as an opportunity to share his hope. Paul uses opposition as an opportunity to share his hope. You saw it already with, with Felix, right? He spent two years with Felix, and although Felix's intentions were to try to bribe Paul or whatever and gain political favor, Paul was using that as an opportunity as much as he could in front of Felix to share his hope in the gospel. And he's even done that with the religious leaders, right? He's saying, it's my hope in the resurrection of the dead that I'm here, inviting them into that. So what's happening in the story is Paul had, you know, talked to Festus. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus is getting ready to send Paul on the road to Rome. And you'll read about that. The book of Acts finishes, and Dave will be back preaching next week to finish those two chapters. You'll actually see Paul's journey to Rome. But before Festus sends him, he has to figure out what's going on, because he's, he's not a Jew. He doesn't understand the Jewish laws and customs. Like, Paul doesn't seem guilty, but the Jews say he is, so what do I do here? Well, what kind of happens is, is another trial. It's sort of a grand jury, right? So a grand jury's job is to kind of ascertain the truth and to see if a trial, an actual you know, criminal trial, is warranted. And so that's sort of what Festus is doing. And I think by God's providence, there's a king who's coming into town named Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa Jr. He's coming into town. He's, he's a Gentile. But he's also like a Jewish follower. His wife is Jewish. So he's, he's very familiar with the Jews and the temple system, the sacrifices and the laws. And so Festus sees this as an opportunity. He says, okay, I can get Herod to come. He goes, would you please come and sit with me and hear this testimony from Paul? Uh, because I don't know what to say when I write my letter to Caesar. It seems weird to send a man who may be innocent and not know what the charges are when you send him away. That's actually what he says. So he's probably sort of covering his base because he's like, I'm sending him to Caesar. I should probably know why I'm sending him. So please help me, Herod. And Herod arrives, and this isn't like a godly man either. He's, he's uh, you know, descended, if you've heard of Herod in like the gospel accounts or even in the book of Acts, there's these different Herods who have come, and they're all part of the same family that have absolutely been opposing Jesus and Jesus' you know, ministers throughout these books. One of the Herods actually put, you know, there's Peter, James, and John. James has already been put to death by one of the Herods. And Peter was almost put to death, but miraculously recovered or was escaped. And so these are the kind of people we're dealing with. So I don't want to make any pretense this is a godly person. But he comes with great pomp, it says in the beginning of chapter 26. With great pomp he comes to hear the story of Paul. And again, Paul in the first part of 26 is, is speaking. He's saying, this is my story. I used to be a persecutor of the way. And on the road to Damascus, I received a vision, bright light, and the voice of the Lord saying, Paul, why do you persecute me? It was Saul at the time. Why do you persecute me? Right? And he gets blinded. And he receives this commission that Jesus says, I'm going to take you and send you not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And the gospel is going to spread throughout the world. And you are going to be a part of that. And again, Ben talked a little bit about that last week, about that story of Paul. And again, there's um, previous chapters where you can see that. So I'm not going to read all that right now. But the point is, is Paul is laying out for Herod his story of what's gone on. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. So if you're in chapter 26, verse 16, we're going to read the rest of this chapter. And he's relaying here what Jesus said to him on the road. 
Jesus is saying, Jesus, I have appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people, that's the Jews, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is revealing this commission. This is my story, Paul is telling Herod. And he says to King Agrippa, right? He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. So he says, I followed my commission that I received from Jesus, and I did it everywhere I could. He said that they should repent. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets of Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is using this opposition as an opportunity to share his hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's something we need to understand. And I I was reading, in my own Bible reading right now, it has me reading through, I'm doing kind of one of those, um, it's a chronological Bible reading. So I'm reading, right now I'm reading all the gospels like kind of at the same time. And it's interesting because I'm reading about the trial, death, and resurrection of Jesus right now in my Bible reading. And if you read that, and you read what's happening to Paul, and I wish we had all this time to, uh, to, to go into these chapters in more detail, some of the language is so similar. I mean, things like that the leaders would say that, I found nothing in this man deserving of death. I've heard that before. I heard Pilate say something similar to a man named Jesus. I found nothing about this man is deserving of death. The way the trials were held, the beatings. I mean, there's so many parallel similarities here, and it is not a coincidence. Luke is laying out that Paul is following in the footsteps of Jesus. He's reminding us. And Jesus is the way, friends. Jesus is the way to justice and to be reconciled with God. Like I said before, Two Bridges Church, right? that we want to connect people to God and one another, I believe the only way we can truly have a restored relationship to God and to one another is through the person and work of Jesus. That Jesus Christ lived that perfect life, that he died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he took away our sin if we've trusted in him. And that sin was that barrier, that great barrier that kept us in a true relationship with God. And sin also affects our relationship with one another. You can have great relationships if you're a non-Christian, or you can have great relationships with non-Christians, right? But there's sin that always is going to be a barrier. That's ultimately our issue. So when we pursue justice, again, by God's common grace, there are people out there pursuing justice, and we should partner with them in whatever ways we can. But in one reality, we have to understand what Paul is claiming here and what Luke is telling us, what Jesus claimed about himself, is that there can never be fully true and lasting eternal justice without Jesus Christ. That he is the way. And we know that because he resurrected from the dead. And Paul is claiming that over and over again. Every opportunity he gets to speak, he says it is the resurrection of the dead. And with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the power of God displayed. We know that his victory was accomplished. Amen? 
that his victory was accomplished. And so we can pursue that. And that's why I'm here today. That's why we're reading these scriptures. That's why Sedaris Church is here. That's why Two Bridges Church is down the street. You want to check it out? No, it's my house. Because Jesus is the way. We believe that. And here's, here's kind of my last point that I'll spend on today. That Paul wants his hope that he's been sharing, he wants his hope to become everyone's hope. He wants his hope to become everyone's hope. So he's been talking to Herod Agrippa. It says, as he was saying these things, these things, I got Southern for some reason. As he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, so Festus speaks up for some reason. He's like, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He's basically saying, you're too smart for your own good. What is going on? You're crazy. I love what Paul says. This is awesome. He's just like, I'm not out of my mind. He's like, I'm not crazy for one thing. Most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I'm speak- I, to him I speak boldly. I love that. It's like Festus speaks up, and he's like, resurrection of the dead, prophets, what are you talking about? And <laughs> Paul's basically like, I'm not crazy, and I'm not really talking to you. I'm talking to Herod. This is, I mean, these are guys that can totally put him to death if they want, or at least hand him over to the Jews and, well, that's kind of like what Pilate did. He said, I'm not really talking to you, but you're welcome to listen in. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Wow, I love that. He's saying this is happening all over the regions, all over the world. It's starting to spread. The king is aware of it. Festus, if you want to close your eyes and pretend like you don't know anything, but the king is aware. He's seeing what's happening, and he claims to be a follower of, you know, Moses, right? Because he says, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. This is so amazing. And Agrippa said to Paul, because remember, he's kind of like, he's pompous, and that's what he calls him. He's like, <laughs> In a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? Say, really? I just heard you. I'm just hearing about this stuff. You, you really think I'd become a Christian? What does Paul say? Of course, Paul says I'm awesome. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Whether short or long, I would to God not only that you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am. Paul's been preaching to anyone. He's like, I was preaching domestic, Damascus, Jerusalem, all Judea, to Jew, Gentile, small, great, rich, poor. He didn't care. He was sharing his hope with everybody. And now he's sharing it to the governor and the king. And, you know, Herod's like, Are you, so you want me to be a Christian? Paul's answer is, yes, of course I do. I'm sharing this good news with everybody. I've had, um, you know, the pleasure of being in Seattle for a, for a while now, almost 10 years and we have, some really, we have some really great friendships. As uh, Dave, you already said, my wife is a dentist, so at dental school she befriended a couple really lovely gals, and they had boyfriends who are now husbands, so there's like the six of us. We call ourselves the Jaybirds. That's our, yeah, that's funny. Anyway, we used to go do trivia, and that's all of our initials makes Jaybirds. That's the best acronym we could come up with. If you've got a better one, let me know, but Jaybirds. And um, one of the gals, the B from Jaybirds, uh, She's a lovely lady, by the way. That wasn't, never mind. So anyway, she comes over, and she's hanging out. Yeah, I'm never coming back. It's okay. Uh, so <laughs> she's hanging out with us, and somehow we're talking about, you know, religion, faith, life, after death, whatever. And she basically said, says to us, so, like, you want me to become a Christian? And I remember my wife and I looked at each other, and it was kind of that, like, what do we, how do we answer? Do we say yes? Do we kind of just kind of go, well, yeah, or whatever works for you. That's a, it's like, what do we say? Do we do this? Are we going there? Is this conversation going there? 
Yes. Yes, we do. Uh, you know, I wish I could say in that moment that she's like, oh, great, well, then I want to become a Christian. Um, no, that's not what happened. I told her pretty much what I tell anybody who's not a Christian. I say, I love you. I believe you're made by God and made to know God, and I believe Jesus is that way. Um, but I'm your, fr- I'm your friend, and I love you. No matter what, if you never come to know the faith in Jesus, my friendship is not based on whether or not you receive Jesus or not. My friendship is based on the fact that I love you. Uh, but yes, I want you to become a Christian. I think that's what's, what's happening with Herod, and that's also what's happening today. So lest I uh, finish my sermon and not say this, if you are here today and you don't actually know Jesus yet, or maybe like, like Dave and Sedaris talks about considering him, I would also be one of those who would say to you today, I would love for you to come to know who Jesus is, to be a part of this, this way, and to become a part of the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that his power would be made manifest in your life, and you would come to know him. Paul says, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about my hope and some of my chains, and I hope it might, might help you. I moved back into Fremont because I love this place, you know, Fremont, Wyford, brother and sister neighborhoods. There are over 13,000 people and counting in Fremont. It's less than one square mile. I get to work at Fremont Brewing. I'm actually wearing, uh, this is actually a Fremont Brewing shirt you can't probably tell. Uh, I see thousands of people. I've seen thousands of people since working there behind the counter. Over and over again. Meeting new people, reconnecting with others. And friends like we have. And they ask us, you know, so you want me to be a Christian? Well, yeah, of course I do. I want you to know who Jesus is been here about two and a half years. Our church is about eight people. And I love you all. Many, a couple of them are here. And I love it. But it's hard because as a church planner, you have this heart like Paul, and you say, I wish all who heard me were like I am and had that hope. I wish that all my coworkers at Fremont Brewing knew who Jesus was. I wish that every person that I served a beer to knew who Jesus was. And maybe I wish in some crazy way I had the boldness of Paul to stand up on the counter and proclaim Jesus to him. I'd probably get fired and never have an opportunity again to do that. So I haven't done that, so I'm not pretending to be that bold like Paul. I wish that every person that was in the neighborhood of Fremont and Wallingford and all these different places in Seattle knew who Jesus was. And I have yet to see one person yet make that full transition yet. You know, we've had these friends for, for years. I wish they were here right now. Maybe they'll hear this sermon online. I don't know. But I still love them, and I still have that hope. It doesn't change the fact that, you know, Jesus is still alive, and he's still at work, and I still have that hope. And there's going to be people in your life, if you're a Christian, that you will have, like Paul, whether short or long. There may be friends, family, coworkers, whatever. Maybe strangers you get an interaction with. And that would be what I'd invite you to consider and to remember, to remember that hope that Paul has, that remember that hope that you've had or have, and say, I want that for other people. I want that for other people. And we can't make anybody a Christian. I don't know if Harry was saying, like, would you make me a Christian? It's like, I can't make anybody a Christian. Jesus does that. But Jesus is alive. And it's kind of nice. The pressure's off. Paul says that they may become such as I am except for these chains. So I just, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, Paul's arrested. He's likely going to face the end of his life. The book of Acts, spoiler alert, doesn't end with him dying. 
but church history tells us that he, in fact, will lose his life for the pursuit of Christ Jesus. We live in a great country that at present, I, it's not illegal to be a Christian, and so I don't, I don't think I'll ever get arrested for preaching my faith in Christ Jesus. If I move to a different country, perhaps that would be the case. So I'm not saying that I'm probably ever going to face that kind of persecution. I think most of us won't. But there will be opposition, and there will be hurt. My church has experienced deep suffering. And like I said, we're about eight people two years in, and we've already had some pretty brutal stuff happen. We've had some intense personal betrayal happen. I remember one night, I ended up on the kitchen floor crying. My wife huddled over me. I didn't, I didn't know what had happened. I thought the church was over, and I didn't know what I had done wrong. It's brutal. It feels like chains. But it gives opportunities. And these chains are worth it. They're worth it. And I'll just tell you two quick things why. Because number one, God is with us in our chains. We've already said Paul follows in the footsteps of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are now following in the footsteps of Jesus. Whether or not your pursuit of Jesus will actually end in your life being taken, you are still following in the footsteps of Jesus. And if you notice um, when I was summarizing these four chapters, basically, uh, there's something really cool that is is said in chapter um, 23, verse 11. It says this, the following night, so this is right after Paul is, um, is talking about the assassination, assassination attempt, and Paul's in jail. It said that following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. Paul already knows where he's headed. He's like, this, this thing's going to end in Rome, and the Lord is with me. He even said it to Herod in, in, in 26... Verse 22, he said, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. God will always use our opposition for something bigger. I, what I love, and, and this is the end of the, the, you know, the chapter, they're saying, you know, he, says, he deserves nothing of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa says to Festus, this man could be set free had he not appealed to Caesar. He's like, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. We could let him go, but he, you know, wants to go see Caesar. Herod doesn't get it. Festus doesn't get it. Paul gets it. He says, you've got no authority over me. Reminds me of what Jesus said to Pilate. You've got no authority over me. Paul's like, I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to get to preach Jesus in Rome. I don't know if Paul actually got the chance to preach Jesus to Caesar. I know he got to talk to people in Caesar's court, his household, those kinds of things, so he might likely have. But he knew there was something bigger. And I do want to just say real quick to you, I don't want to minimize your chains, your suffering. I certainly am not minimizing mine. And your suffering might be something different, because you might not be a church planner. Odds are you're not. But um, you, if you're a Christian pursuing Jesus, you may have suffering in your chains. And, you know, if this was a counseling session and you were here telling me about your suffering, I, I wouldn't just go, oh, God's got bigger plans and just kind of brush over it. Um, I'm just trying to make a point here with Paul that Paul um, understands that God has a bigger plan. Um, and so that is true. Um, and if you are in the midst of suffering, I would say, you know, there's, those chains are real, and God is with you in those things. But this last thing I do know, and this is my final point, that the chains are temporary, but the hope is eternal. That the chains are temporary, but the hope is eternal. Paul sums it up great. Paul, Paul's going to sum it up, and then I'm going to try to say something after that. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, he says, remember Christ Jesus. He's talking to Timothy. He's near the end of his life. So Paul had been imprisoned once. He got free. He got to go to kind of Spain and, and, and do some of that. He got re-imprisoned, and he's at the very end of his life. It's one of the last letters he writes, and he's telling a young man, Timothy. He says, remember Christ Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David, great name, as preached in my gospel 
for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul's, again, he's found himself in chains. He says, bound in chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. That's the hope I have when I'm out there at Fremont Brewing or in my house. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is speaking of his chains. Yes, I have chains on me right now. God's word's not bound by these chains, and these chains are temporary. But God's hope, my hope in God, is eternal. And if someone hears the gospel through my chains and receives new life in Jesus, that is eternal. When Jen and I were talking one night on the couch about one of our most recent hurts, I remember saying through tears, and I swear I don't cry every night about church planning, um, but I was, again, in that moment, I said, man, this betrayal, this pain, it, it hurts. It hurts deep. And I, but I said, the good news is, I guess I'm trying to preach to my wife, right? It was like, the good news is, hon, that all of this pain, as bad as it is, it, as bad as it is, as real as it is, as raw as it is, if it lasts until the end of our life, and likely it might not, God can, can work through us in our pain in this life, but even if it makes it, and last all the way to the end of our life. That's as far as we'll have to take it. Those chains will be set free in that moment. And all the good that's happened, all the conversations, all the people that have either fallen more in love with Jesus through the work that he did here at Two Bridges in Fremont or have found Jesus for the first time, all of that gets to be eternal. It gets to be eternal. It'll last forever. Will you pray with me? Christ Jesus, I thank you so much uh, for this opportunity for myself just to even get to spend some time in your word with these wonderful people. I thank you for Sedaris Church and the work that you're doing here through Pastor Dave, Pastor Ryan, and everyone else here that calls this church home. That, that there would be people, whether short or long, our time here together as Sedaris Church, as Two Bridges Church, as people in this city, that whether short or long, that all might have the hope that we have. And it's not an empty prayer that we pray today because we're praying to a living, live God, Jesus Christ. We pray to you that you are not bound by chains or by suffering and that you suffered well for us on our behalf and you suffer with us now and you carry us through. And we pray that we would just be reminded here today of our hope that we have in you and that is an eternal hope that lasts forever. And I do pray that we would see more people come to know you as we seek to share your gospel with everyone. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Every week at Sedaris, we come and we celebrate the suffering of Christ. I mean, what a strange practice for those people of the way that we celebrate the body of Jesus broken and the blood of Jesus shed. And we celebrate that because we know what it meant that on the cross, through the breaking of the body and the shedding of the blood that God's wrath and justice was poured out on Jesus and not on us and that when we attach ourselves to Jesus we experience freedom from those chains and as Dave said that even Jesus suffering was but temporary and on the third day he rose again to walk in newness of life a life that he now offers to us through faith in him and so that's why we celebrate every week. What a strange thing to celebrate suffering, to celebrate blood poured out. But we do it, and we'll do it again today for everyone who's placing their trust in Jesus, for everyone who's saying and publicly professing that Jesus Christ bore on that cross my sin, my shortcoming, 
my rebellion against my creator, God. You come and you rip off a piece of the bread, the body of Christ broken for you. You'll dip it in the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you, and you'll eat it as a way of symbolizing this union that is both now and forevermore. After everyone's had a chance to participate, who wants to participate uh, in the Lord's Supper, we'll pass around our offering baskets. You can give of yourself through your prayers, through your connect cards, saying, I want to be connected to gospel community. I want to be connected to a community that considers Jesus Christ together. We'd love to, to, to have you fill out a connect card. Or if you want to give of your finances, if you want to give back to the mission of God in this city, uh, you can do that through the baskets or you can do that online or through the Sedaris app as well as a way of saying, I want to, in, in some small way, suffer and sacrifice so that others might know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So I deliver to you what I also receive for myself, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread. This is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again and eat with you. Oh, that'll be a beautiful, wonderful day. And the tears of this life will be no more. And the glories of relationship with God will last forever. Oh, that we might suffer for Christ and walk in his footsteps. When you're ready, come proclaim Jesus' death and his resurrection and have fellowship with him.